Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Am I on back there, Drew? Yes, I am. And Drew, I'll have you do me a favor. Take the gain knob. Do you know where the gain knob is? And turn it down just a little bit. Perfect. Right there. Thank you, Drew. Well, when I got that text at 6.30 this morning... I knew, I knew that I needed a passage that would preach itself, so where did I go? The whole book of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, that's where, we'll be, that's where we'll be stationed is the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be moving through it as we go this morning. Drew, turn me down just a little bit more, please. But I want to mention from the very outset of this, and we here at Magic Valley Bible Church... You can see it on our door, you see it on our website. We have the phrase, built on God's word. And that is exactly who we are here at Magic Valley Bible Church. We uphold God's word as the only authority, the only absolute truth in our lives. God's word is inerrant. It is sufficient It is supreme over our lives. And so as we consider God's word, that's exactly the place that it has in our lives. There's many individuals who will say that the Bible is not relevant. The Bible being written a couple thousand years ago has no permanence in our lives, has no place for us. And I would strongly disagree In fact, I would go the complete opposite direction. The Bible is critical for our lives. It is absolutely critical. And this morning, as I mentioned, we are going to cover the entire book of Ecclesiastes. My task is a little difficult, but I think we can get through it. And I want to mention that this is kind of a devotional and a sermon put together. I've heard of preachers who do lectures and sermons put together, also known as a lerman. Here with a a devotional in the sermon, I haven't quite figured out how to put those two together yet. A a servotional would probably be the best I can come up with on that. But it's going to be a devotional and a sermon put together, and we're going to try and hit the high points as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I believe it'll be very devotional and a and applicable for us this morning. Because as we understand God's word, it's critical that we're not just hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word as well. That's what scripture commands of us. And so this morning, 
Before we jump into Ecclesiastes, I want to go to the Lord in prayer for our time. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your word, for the truth that it contains for our lives. Lord, that all scripture is breathed by you. And Lord, that it is most applicable to us. In a world that seems to have no truth, we know that your word is truth. So we pray that as we come before you this morning, we would have open ears and open hearts to what your word has to say. And we thank you for the truth, the love, the grace that is contained in the pages of Scripture that you have given to us. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, it may have been a little while since we've looked to such a book as Ecclesiastes. It it can often be a misunderstood book, a book of sorrow and pain and and a horrid nature. But I, I actually believe the opposite. One commentator calls this book the Philippians of the Old Testament. And so as we look to Ecclesiastes, this is a book that is a thinker's book. It's, it's not a book full of action. It's not a book that we have a lot of commands in that say, you need to do this, this is how you need to obey the Lord, and so on. It's not a book that contains a lot of those aspects. This is a thinker's book. This is a book that slows us down and stops us and forces us to think about life in its fullest sense. And as such, it's a book for which we need to listen. It's a book about listening. We talk about being hearers and doers of God's word, absolutely, and this book is a book of listening. Because as you look at the life of Solomon and understand how Solomon gained wisdom by having a listening heart, we can understand that through that, God speaks, and so therefore we need to listen. The book of Hebrews tells us that God speaks through his Son and his Word, and so therefore we need to listen. It's a book about listening. Think back with me to the book of Deuteronomy. When we hear that big, the, what's called the Shema uh, command, the Lord our God is one, but what comes before that? Hear, O Israel. God speaks, and we need to listen. This is a book about listening. It's a thinker's book, a contemplative book. And as you consider the idea of listening to God's word in Ecclesiastes 1.1, the author denotes himself as the preacher. And when you think about a preacher, a preacher is one who heralds God's word, who proclaims God's word to other people. And so, when the preacher proclaims God's word to us, we need to listen. Once again, this is a book about listening. 
and its wisdom to us. That's how Solomon gained his wisdom was by listening to the voice of God. And that's how we gain wisdom as well as believers is by listening to God through his word. So then if you want a title for this book, or for this sermon, I should say, this overview really, I would title it, How to Live Your Best Life Now. How to Live Your Best Life Now. And yes, I stole that from a famous preacher in Texas. But I have a little bit of a different focus than he does. And as we'll see, the book of Ecclesiastes really does teach us how to live your best life now. It really does. And one of the things we'll see from the very outset of this book, and there's going to be a number of principles that I give to you as we go from this book that the preacher wants us to understand. And from the very outset in verse 2, after the preacher has introduced himself, he jumps right into verse 2 and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. And then he repeats himself, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now the Hebrew word for vanity here is one that gives us a sound to really understand what it means. The word is havel. And when you say the word havel, in fact, everyone say havel. Havel. What do you hear coming out with that word? Havel. It's a breath. And the meaning of the word havel really is a vapor, a puff of smoke, a breath. On cold days when you wake up in the morning, you go outside and you can see your breath, right? You see it there for a second. But then just like that, it's gone. And that's the idea behind this word. It's a breath, it's a vapor, it's there for a second, but then it's gone, just as quickly as it came. And so that's what Havel is. That's what vanity is. It's something that's there for a second, but then gone again. And so this first theme that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is the shortness or the elusiveness of life. Life is short. Life is elusive. You see the breath, but then it's gone. And so, I go back to my statement of how I've titled this, How to Live Your Best Life Now, because life is short. Life is a vapor. Havel. It's there and it's gone. And so in verse 3, the preacher poses a question for us. He says there, What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? The preacher's asking the question, what advantage is there to all of this, this short life that we have? If, if life is so short and fleeting, what, what benefit is there to it? All of man's work under the sun, what, what good is it? That's the question that the preacher is posing to us. And he goes on to give us some concepts to wrestle with. Again, this is a thinker's book. He starts there, if you go down to verse 7, 
he shows us in verses 7 through 9 the cyclical nature of the world. How the world works in a cycle. And it goes over and over and over again. Verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. The preacher's looking at the daily motion, the daily cycle of life on this planet. And he sees that it just keeps going. It flows continuously. It's like a river flowing into the ocean, but yet somehow the river doesn't dry up and the ocean doesn't overflow. It's like the seasons that come in and out. They come and they go, and it just keeps going. The cycle never stops. It never reaches completion, if you will. There's never an end to it. It's never, this is finally done. It just keeps going. And we see that in life. You see, every morning you get up, it's another day. Every morning you get up, It's another day, and it just keeps going. And thus, in the sense that nature is never completely satisfied, in the sense that it never reaches its culmination point, it's never end, there's never an end to it. In the same way, mankind will never be completely satisfied on this earth. Think about it this way How many times have you said, I'll be happy when this happens? I'll be able to relax once I get the grocery shopping done. Or, you know, it'll be really nice once we get into a routine of this. Or once, once I get to next week, we should be okay. Things will be fine. And yet we get there, and there's more work. There's more to do. It just keeps going. Our to-do list never ends. Think about it that way. You hit one deadline, and there's another deadline right around the corner. As a seminary student, I would complete an assignment. Take a deep breath. We're done. That's good. Oh, I have an assignment due next week. Here we go. Start right back up again. It's a cycle, and it never ends. That goes throughout life. I finished seminary, and I got here. (laughs) And then I got a text at 6.30 this morning. Life just keeps going and going and going, doesn't it? Some of, some of my close friends from, from Iowa, after they retired, they would tell me, Nate, I've never been busier since I retired. And I'm thinking, didn't you just finish working? And life just keeps going like that, doesn't it? Life is busy, and life just keeps going. It's a cycle. It never ends. There's never a point where we can take a deep breath and say, ha, huh. I'm done, because it just keeps going. We'll never be completely satisfied, and that's exactly what the preacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes. We we long to break this cycle, though, to do something that will end our 
ultimate dissatisfaction. Now, we're satisfied in life. We understand that. But there's always something more to do. Something on our to-do list. Oh, I really don't want to do that. I have to take care of this. This is another thing over here. We never truly end that cycle. And we long to do it, don't we? We long to take a break. That's, what, that's why we take vacations. But yet there's always work to come back to. We work so hard to climb out of this pit of work and this cycle that we're in, but we can't exactly do it. I know for myself that there are sometimes late nights at the office to try and get ahead on some work, but yet the work is always there. There will always be more work. There's always more in life for work. This cycle of work and busyness, constant going, it never ends. You may finish a project and feel satisfied, but yet there's still another one on the horizon. And so we can say then, as many people do with the book of Ecclesiastes, life is meaningless. And to a degree, that's true. To a degree that life is meaningless without God. We understand that. Life is meaningless without God. But there is so much more to this book that the preacher wants us to know. And it begins by understanding the vapor of life and the vanity of striving after the wind. Working ourselves to the bone, but never being ultimately or truly satisfied. And we think of how vanity that can be. The constant going and going and going. Is it, is it meaningless? What's it for? It just constantly goes. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of Ecclesiastes. So then we get into chapter 2. And this preacher here puts the concept of the cycle of nature looking for something to satisfy, really satisfy, he puts that to a test. He decides he's going to test it, and he uses several things to test it. He begins with the concept of pleasure. With pleasure. He says, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too is futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? It's vanity. He begins with pleasure and possessions. Think about it this way. He begins by going to the bars and the comedy clubs, looking for satisfaction, something that will satisfy. And our world does that, doesn't it? They go to the bar to find satisfaction, to find a relief of the constant cycle of life but yet they end up at the bar the next night. It just keeps going. It never does satisfy. How about the comedy club? You get to hear a few laughs, but then when the laughter is over, life kicks back in. So the comedy club doesn't satisfy either. Then he goes on in verse 4. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. He built houses and riches. Okay, so the comedy club and the bar didn't help. How about I build up wealth? Build up all this stuff, all this physical material stuff. 
But then he concludes that section by saying that it's vanity. Behold, look at, look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. All those houses that were built, all the nights at the bar and the comedy club, it, it didn't mean anything. It didn't provide the rest from, from the work, from all his dissatisfaction. It didn't, it didn't relieve him of that. It just kept going. And we often hear that Solomon, Solomon, this was at a point where he was a fool. He had lost his wisdom. And I would beg to differ on that. Let's take a look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. How about in verse 9? Verse 9 of chapter 2, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. So in this, I don't think the preacher had lost his wisdom. I don't think Solomon was falling into foolishness here. I think here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon was experimenting. Solomon was trying to gain wisdom, trying to objectively look at life to understand where does satisfaction come from. It goes back to chapter 1. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? Solomon's asking this question, he's posing it, and he's trying to answer it as objectively as he possibly can. I don't think Solomon's wisdom left him. I think he's working through this wisdom to answer this question. So his experiment goes on. Verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has been already done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. So Solomon goes to school. He's done with the bars and the nightclubs and the comedy clubs. He's done building up houses and material buildings and things like that to try and, to try and gain satisfaction. So he decides to go to school. What wisdom is there in that? But he concludes in verse 17 that this too was vanity. Verse 17, so I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. He concludes that going to school wasn't going to solve that satisfaction. And there's actually a number of individuals who spent a majority of their life in school. I read an article about one, I want to say he's in his early 80s, and he has never left school. He has somewhere in the range of 30 or 40 master's degrees. And he's constantly been in school. But what gain is that? And the preacher says that it's vanity. So the preacher's tried several things so far. What else does he try? He tries work. Take a look at verse 18. 
Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. So he worked. And he worked and he worked and he worked. But then when death comes, there's someone who's going to take his job. And he has no clue how that individual will treat his work, his labor, Will it all be for naught? Will it all be a loss? And he has labored all his life for this job, for the satisfaction, but yet death ultimately comes. And so there is no satisfaction because his work gained him nothing. Someone else just came and took his job after him. And so Solomon concludes, this too is vanity. So what does he conclude? He concludes very simply in verse 24 that there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. So the preacher has tested all these things. His result is always vanity. It's always not worth it, to put it simply. The cyclical nature of life keeps going on on and there's no ultimate satisfaction so he tries pleasure he tries work he tries school none of it is providing that satisfaction that he wants understanding from verse or from chapter one again what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun what advantage is there to it and so far he hasn't found it but what he has found in verse 24, and he concludes verse 24 by saying that it's from the hand of God, therefore it's a good thing for man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. So we see that life is labor. We see that all our toiling after complete satisfaction and gain, it's, it's unfruitful. So our second key principle here is that life is not about gain. Life is not about gain, rather Life is a gift. Life is a gift, and we are to enjoy it. Life is a gift. He went through all of these things to see that they are folly, and so he simply concludes that it's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Work hard. But understand that your work is not the end goal. No, life is a gift that God has given to you, and so you are to enjoy it. You do your work heartily, but understand that it's not the end goal. You can enjoy pleasures of life. You can enjoy houses and things like that, but that's not the end goal. That's not where true satisfaction is found. So then we go to chapter 3. We go to chapter 3, understanding that life is not about gain, it's a gift, and we are to enjoy it. And the preacher starts off by giving us a time for everything. He, he shows us here the various pieces of life, if you will. He says that there's a time to give birth and a time to die, looking from the beginning to the end. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. There's also things like a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. 
He's showing us all these different aspects of life, and there is a time for these. There is a time for life and a time for death. There is a time to laugh and a time to mourn. These are just aspects of life, various pieces, from birth to death and everything in between, I like to say. But he quickly reaches his next theme. At the end of this list, the preacher comes to his theme in that we have no control over all these aspects. We have no control over these aspects of life. He says in verse 9 through 11 and even 12, What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even to the end, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. So in the vapor of life that we cannot control, we can't control our time of birth, we can't control our time of death, in those things, we understand that God is in control. God is in control, and he has his purposes in it. And that's our greatest hope, isn't it? Verse 12, there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. When we see the pain in this world, the difficulties that we face day in and day out, there's a time for rejoicing and a time for weeping. When we see those, we can know that God is in control. And that's a good thing. Think about it this way. As a child lives their life, if you have kids or if you are a kid, you can think about it like this. You go about your day. You wake up in the morning, usually eat breakfast. Maybe watch some cartoons. If you're not in school yet, then you may play with your toys in your room. Mom calls you for lunch. And then you go outside and want to play some more. Oh, it's nap time now. And then you have a play date with another friend. And you go throughout your day, and, and the child doesn't care. He's not concerned about these various aspects. He's just enjoying them as they come. He never fully understands what's going on, but content in the fact that his parents do know what's going on. It's time to get in the car and, and go to the playground. Okay. He's not worried about the logistics for that. He trusts his parents. He trusts their wisdom. It's time for bed now. Yeah, I don't want to go to bed, but you need your sleep. Yeah, I understand. Probably not that easy. <laughs> but ultimately, the child trusts his parents. He doesn't have to worry about the activities, but the parents do. Think about it this way. The parents, okay, we got to plan the meals. Okay, if he's having a play date with so-and-so, we gotta, we got to call them, make sure that they're ready for it. we got to have gas in the car if we're going to go somewhere. Time, time to get groceries. Okay, he needs a bath, so we got to make sure we have all the supplies for that. Bedtime, you got to extend that at least a half hour to get him to And the parents are the ones who are concerned about all that, right? But the, the child isn't. 
The child's just enjoying life as they go through it. And in a sense, we are that child. We're supposed to be that child, enjoying life as we go through it. And God is the one who is orchestrating everything above us. God is the one who is controlling all these different aspects, who, who is sovereign over them. And so he's telling us, don't fret about these things. Enjoy life because God is sovereign. God is in control. Another way to think about it is with Legos. Lego, I love toys. Legos. We have all the pieces, but yet we don't have the picture for what it's supposed to be yet. So we're looking at these pieces. Uh, that one goes there, maybe. I think that goes there, and we're, we're fretting about it, trying to get this thing put together. But God, God's the master blueprint holder. He has the picture. He knows what it's supposed to look like, and he's going to put it together the way he wants. And we may not always understand, why is that piece going there? Because God wants it to. Understanding life in that it's not about gain, it's a gift from God, and we are to enjoy it. We can't control all aspects of life. We don't control the seasons. We don't control where the rivers flow. God does, and we're not to fret about that. We enjoy life. So then the preacher comes to chapter 4. He comes to chapter 4, and he sees a great injustice and distress in the world. Take a look at verse 1. It says, Then I looked again at all the acts of, the, of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. He sees this great injustice and distress in the world, and he can't bear to see it. So much so that in verses 2 and 3, he congratulates the dead. Look at verse 2. I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. The injustice was so severe that he's like, congratulations on being dead because I'm still here and I have to put up with this. I have to see this pain every single day. And it's, it can be hard to see. We see the same thing. You turn on the news, you're going to see it. You're going to see the pain. How many times are we flipping through the channels and we see something that's so particularly awful that you just have to look away. You have to change the channel as quickly as you can because it's so horrible to consider. And that's the preacher here. He's looking at these things and saying that is so awful that he congratulates the dead. But what particularly stands out to him is the solitude of the oppressed individual. Notice what he says in verse 1. And, I behold, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed that they had no one to comfort them. Concerned about the solitude of the oppressed individual here. So let's connect the dots for a second. We saw that our obedience to love as a, as a child, right? We're supposed to enjoy God. We're supposed to enjoy life. And what are the two greatest commands that God gives to us about life? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is 
love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Two greatest commands about living life and enjoying life. So not only are we to love God and rejoice in his sovereignty over our lives, enjoying life as we go, knowing that God is in control, but we're to love those around us. We're to love those around us. Remember, life is not about gain. Life is a gift. And as we enjoy it, it ought to be shared with others. God has made us relational beings. We are to give to others and care for others. This is a key in our lives. It's the second greatest commandment, if you will. And you look down, Solomon gives us a couple foolish examples. He gives us what I call the lazy fool in verses 5 and 6. Take a look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 4. It says, The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. So he, he says that you're lazy and you're foolish. There's nothing to gain from that, from being lazy. That's foolishness. But then in verse 8, he looks at the busy fool. Verse 8 says, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And, from, and for whom am I laboring and, dis, and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So we have the lazy fool. He's lazy and, and arrogant, and that's foolishness. You need to work. But then on the other hand, there's the busy fool who's working and working and working. He's all by himself, just constantly working, and for what? It's vanity. There's a balance to it. Life is not a solo act, if you will. There's no excuse for not loving those around us. You have the lazy fool who's just too lazy to get up and do it. Uh, my neighbor wants some help with something. Sorry, I'm, I'm too busy for that. Yeah, laying on the couch. But then you get to the other end of things. Your neighbor wants help with something. I'm too busy. I'm doing this and this and this and this over here. But what's it for? Is it for yourself? What's the end goal? We're relational beings. Life is not a solo act. It's not about gain. It's a gift, and it's meant to be shared and enjoyed with others. So then we come to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, and the preacher is recognizing the bleak outlook on life that he's painted, especially from chapter 4. Life is but a vapor, and our best efforts will not satisfy us. All the work that we can do, it's not going to satisfy us. All the education that we can get, it's not going to satisfy us. And there's injustice in the world, and there's great pain, and there's hor horrible things that we can't even fathom that we don't want to look at. There's a bleak outlook that he's painted. But you can't just toss in the towel and go home. It's like, all oh, this is worthless, and life is horrible, and the world looks terrible. I'm done. I quit. Just toss in the towel and walk out. 
to use another expression, you can't just drink yourself under the table and live foolishly either. You can't quit and you can't try and neglect the life that's there, the, the life that God has given to you by just trying to blot it all out in your mind. By living as foolishly as you can because, oh, it's not worth it. Life is horrible. No point in trying. I'm going to the bar. You can't do that either. The preacher is regathering himself here, and he says that we need to listen to God. We need to listen to God. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We need to listen to God. Our words and our actions matter. So we can't just throw in the towel and resort to foolish actions and foolish words because life is so harsh. We need to listen to God. Our words matter, and so we need to listen. Think about it this way. There's always someone who thinks they know everything about everything, especially Christianity. That's, that's a big one. They can give you every single argument for every single concept that you bring up to them. They think Christianity, oh, it's just another religion. And they have all of these things lined up in their mind. You give them, give them a defense of Scripture and they dismiss it. Oh, no, I've already figured that one out. I'm done with that. He has an answer for it. And he's constantly talking, isn't he? Constantly going. His mouth never stops. His, his wisdom, quote-unquote, is constantly going. He thinks he knows everything. But the preacher's saying that we don't need to hear ourselves more. We don't need to hear ourselves more. We need to listen more. We need to listen more. Understanding that God is sovereign. Understanding that God is in control, so when God speaks, we need to listen. We don't need to constantly be running our mouth in the face of God. We need to listen to him. Listen to his word. And so we jump over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And the preacher is continuing to make his case. So we understand that life is a vapor. We understand that all aspects of life are outside of our control. From, from birth to death, it's God who's in control, and he's designed us to enjoy it in his sovereignty. And we can't be satisfied in our own efforts, so then the preacher is making the case, how should we then live? How should we then live? And the answer to that is that the preacher invites us to a memorial. He invites us to a memorial, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. 
He says, a good name is better than, good o- than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. He's taking us to a memorial. Why does he do that? Because death is a better teacher for us than life is. Death is a better teacher for us than life. I like to say that the coffin preaches a better sermon than the cradle. Another way to think about it is that when someone's born, when a newborn baby, when you see that picture, what can we say about that newborn baby? You have your mother's eyes, you got your father's chin, you have your sister's big mouth. There's not a whole lot you can say about that baby so far. But when someone dies, what then do we say about that person? They lived a faithful life. I saw them in church every Sunday. They loved the Lord. They had people over at their house constantly. I saw them reading their Bible all the time. They came for prayer constantly here at the church. They loved helping their friends when they needed it. They were always there when I needed them most. There's so much we can say about someone at their death because they've lived life. Or there's other side of things. They really kept to themselves. I, I don't know a whole lot about them. They never left their house in the past 30 years. They were constantly bashing me for X, Y, and Z. Death is a better teacher than birth. You see, the wise man listens during a memorial in order to be taught by death how to live. Because that man knows, the wise man knows at the memorial, someday he'll be there. Someday he's going to be the one in the coffin. And so he listens to all these people make expressions at the memorial about life. This person loved the Lord, or this person hated the church. And so the wise man's hearing that, and he's gaining wisdom on how to live life. How he should then live. In an understanding that life is a vapor, that we have no control over it, that God is sovereign And that life is not meant to be a solo act. He sees this memorial and is able to answer the question, how should we then live? The coffin preaches a better sermon than the cradle. The material things become useless at a memorial, don't they? I don't know how many preachers have used the expression, you you never see a hearse hauling a U-Haul. Because it's true, the material things do us nothing at the memorial. We don't care about those anymore. We live life in light of the grave. It teaches us that all life concludes with death. 
That's our next theme, that we are to live life in light of the grave. Now let me be clear on this. Just because death teaches us a lesson, it doesn't mean that the lesson is enjoyable. We still weep and mourn over the loss of friends and families. Yes, that is absolutely hard. That's not easy. It's difficult. It's sorrowful. But in that, we recognize the need to live a life that is worth it, don't we? We can't focus on the unnecessary things. Because at a memorial, do you hear anything about the unnecessary? Do you hear anything about all that had tens of billions of dollars here? No, you hear about their character. We live life in light of the grave, and life teaches us that it all concludes with death. And so we move on. The preacher has one more lesson for us here in chapter 7. It's in verses 7 through 25. And he shows us that even wisdom is vanity. Even wisdom is vanity. And this is kind of a hard one to grasp because we're told to gain wisdom. We're told in the Proverbs especially that wisdom is important and vital and good and true. It's good to have, absolutely, but wisdom is not everything. Wisdom is ultimately vanity. Note especially verses 12 through 14. Take a look at those for me. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12 says, For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Consider all the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Wisdom is limited. It can have great benefit for you in your life. In verse 7, he talks about wisdom being good in money. He talks about it being good in patience in verse 8. Wisdom is good with patience. It teaches us about anger in verse 9, or even nostalgia in verse 10. There's wisdom in in these. But in the end we understand that we have no control over life. We will never know all things. The the smartest professor in the world, think about this way, the smartest professor in the world can solve any mathematical problem. He knows all the equations. He can do all this great scientific work. But even he can't answer the question of why does life throw us chaos and trials? Even he still mourns when life is difficult. When sorrow hits, he's not exempt from that. All his wisdom does not save him from life. Because life is full of trials. There's joys and there's trials. He can't explain those. So then the preacher begins to review in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Turn there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we have to understand a few things first as he begins to review. 
He says there in verse 9, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are all in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. We understand that. It's God who's sovereign. We're not in control of life. Verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. What the preacher is saying there is that you can be the smartest man alive and you're still going to face the grave. You can be the richest person alive and you're still going to face the grave. You can be the most powerful person alive and you're still going to face the grave. One fate befalls all of them, whether the wicked or the good, and it is death. So understanding that death is the end here, how do we live? What do we do? And in verses 7 through 9, he answers this question for us. He says, go then, verse 7, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. He's saying, enjoy life. Enjoy life to its fullest. Life is a gift. It's not about gain. You can work yourself constantly, constantly trying to gain something, but there's still death at the end. You can gain all the money, and there's still death at the end. You can have all the wisdom, be the smartest man alive, and there's still death at the end. So what's he saying? In light of the fact that death is coming, live life and enjoy it. Enjoy your life. God has given it to you as a gift that you did not deserve so enjoy it. Enjoy your life. I'll give you some examples. Go hike the Grand Canyon. Write a book. Cook a meal. Enjoy a movie. Have a game night. Explore the city. Build a pillow fort. Go dancing. Watch the stars. Take a trip. Visit your relatives. And on and on and on. Enjoy life. Life is a gift. It's not about gain. Now let me be clear. The preacher is not saying to be lazy. We've condemned laziness in this, but he's telling you to enjoy it. Work hard, but enjoy your life. It's a gift that God has given to you. I am not saying to live in fear of death that's coming. We know death is coming, absolutely. Don't live in fear of it. Live in an understanding of it that it's coming, so enjoy life now. Live life to its fullest. You go to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And he's speaking, looking back on life as an older man, speaking to a younger man. To those who are younger. He says in verse 8 of chapter 11, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. 
Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart. Put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. He's he's commanding us to rejoice in life, to understand the gift that life is. But notice at the end of verse 9 where he says, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So he's saying, don't be foolish. Don't waste your life. Enjoy it, but don't waste it. And you notice the mention of the creator in verse 10. or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Man has toiled ever since the garden. Looking at the concept of a creator takes us back to the garden. Man has toiled ever since the garden. And there was a thought in the garden, when man fell, there was a thought that God was holding something back from him, wasn't there? God knows that it will make you wise and you will be like him. And so we took of the fruit and ate it because man thought that God was withholding something from him. There was some some pleasure that man needed to get out of it, right? But no, we need to live life in joy knowing that God is our creator. He's the one who's sovereign over our lives. He controls all things. And when you recall the garden, we can think back to the way things were meant to be. The joy of working in the garden. Things that were very good in creation. Things, the way things were meant to be. And so as we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, the preacher reminds us again that death is coming. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. Chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Death is coming, so we need to make the most of life. And the preacher, in verses 13 and 14, he concludes very simply. Verse 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. We're to fear God and keep his commandments. The conclusion is simply that. Fear God, keep his commandments, and enjoy life. Remember that life is not about gain. Life is a gift, and we are meant to enjoy it. And that is the wisdom that the preacher gives us. That's the wisdom that can actually be found over the sun as we work under the sun. The true wisdom is this. 
know God, keep his commandments, enjoy life, because life is not about gain. Life is a gift that God has given to us, and we're to enjoy it to its fullest. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the life that you have given to us, the gift that it is for us. Lord, we pray that we would enjoy life, that we would not toil for the sake of trying to gain something, Lord, that we would enjoy life, knowing that it's a gift from you, knowing that you are sovereign over it, and that we're not to worry about all these details, but Lord, we're to enjoy it. So we thank you for the gift that it is, that you've given it to us freely for every breath that we have in our lungs is a gift from you. We thank you for your word, how it has instructed us. We pray that we would continue to be obedient to your word as we seek to draw closer to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or youtube at youtube.com slash mvbible magic valley bible church built on god's word